as you're being seated. If you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We'll be in verses 18 through 24 today. It's our launching point for this series. Now, if you're saying, it's like, now wait a second, I thought we were in Ephesians. We were walking through this thing that all of a sudden you just stopped right before we got to the wives submit to your husband's part. What's going on? Well, the reason why that we're doing this is not because this is a, that's a passage of Scripture to be afraid of. In fact, as we'll see, that's something of the heart of Christian marriage. But what I thought that we would do is since the opportunity is afforded to us to talk about marriage and family naturally in Ephesians, I thought it would be good to take uh, a wider view and, to, and ask the question, what is marriage? What does this mean before we ask how it works, which is what we'll see in the next two sermons in Ephesians? So we're starting here in Genesis chapter 2 because, well, this is where marriage got started. So it would be good to understand where it came from if we're going to understand what it is. So here in Genesis chapter 2, we will begin in verse 18 with the first thing that God ever said of his creation that was not good. Let's begin. Ephesians 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh and the, rib, and, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this passage that we have before us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the blessings that are entailed in it and that we might get to see how you are continuing to work in this world through our marriages. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's funny, some of the places where you can find where people stumble upon truth when they're not expecting to. One of those places comes from the Disney movie, The Incredibles. If you haven't seen the film, it's a movie of a family of superheroes that find themselves in trouble. The parents have been abducted, and it's the kid's job to try to get them back. And at one point, as the older sibling is trying to explain to the younger sibling the gravity of the situation, they're saying mom and dad's lives might be in danger, or even worse, their marriage. Now that line is played for laughs, but there's something profound to that, isn't there? 
This underscores, unintentionally of course, the importance of what marriage is. Because contrary to what we can think, marriage is not just limited to our own personal experience of it. But God has given us marriage for a particular reason, as meant to convey a very particular message. Now, marriage is one of those things where this is something that is not going to work well outside of the gospel. The reason for that is because that was the point of marriage, was to proclaim the gospel. And you need the gospel to be able to do marriage properly. The historical fact that Jesus came to earth, died on the cross for our sins, is what is pictured in every Christian marriage. So what I want you to see is to show what this is, whether or not you have actually been married. Now, I want to begin by talking to those of you that are single for whatever reason, whether unmarried yet or been married in the past, or children who are here. Because what I don't want you to think is that, oh, well, this is about marriage and married people or grown-ups, and that doesn't apply to me. And that's not true. What we're going to cover in this series on marriage is profoundly applicable to you for two reasons. One is that we, in this church body, we're going to covet it together. As we've been going through this passage in Ephesians, we have heard over and over and over and over again, we are one body, united together in Christ. And if there's something that's going to be important to the vast portion of the church, it should be important to you too. When there are marriages that are struggling and you have the opportunity to point them to the scriptures, you need to know what the scriptures say about this to help one another out in the marriage. And the second thing that we should care about marriage, whether or not you ever get married, is this is one of the main metaphors that the Bible uses for our relationship with God. As we'll see when we get to the end of this series in Ephesians 5.31, that the whole reason why God invented marriage was to show you the relationship between Jesus and the church. So if you're going to want to understand what your relationship to Jesus points to, and how that works, then you need to understand what marriage is and what it means. Also, if you are a child or you're young and single, it's also quite likely that you'll get married one day. And it's a good thing to know how this works. If I was to tell you, after church today, we are going to play a team-based game. Pick a partner to play with. What would be the first question you would want to know? What game are we playing? Because if it was going to be tug-of-war or trivial pursuit, you would probably have very different partners in mind as to which game you're going to play. It's the same thing here with marriage. We put tons of work and years and research into a career that, for the most part, we will do for maybe 10 or 20 years at a time. And we'll put very little effort into understanding how a marriage works or who it is that would make a good candidate for a spouse. We can only find that wisdom here. And it's much better, if you're a child or you're young and single here, to be thinking through these things now before you get to my premarital counseling office. So there's been a number of people that I've talked to. It's like, we're six weeks out from, from the wedding, and whoo, we don't understand what this is. We need to get caught up on that. I want you to understand what this is because this is a beautiful thing that God has given to us. I want us to enjoy it, see it for the glory that it is. So, I have three points for you today in a terrible breach of pattern. 
we have three points we're going to cover. First thing, all describing what marriage is. Point number one, marriage is a promise. Marriage is a promise. Point number two, marriage is a privilege. We'll get to that. Marriage is a privilege. And then finally, marriage is a presentation. So three things. Marriage is a promise, it's a privilege, and it's a presentation. So let's see how all those things work. First is a promise. We can't talk about marriage without talking about covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a very solemn, unbreakable promise that's been made. The closest thing we have to something like that today is a contract. But a contract doesn't nearly drive home how binding covenants were at the time. You can always find a way out of a contract, especially here in America. You can pay your way out or whatever. But here, when people were going to make a covenant between one another, the way that the ceremony would work is they would actually split an animal in half. You'd put two halves on either side, and the parties of the covenant would walk between the animal and would make a solemn promise to God saying, if I break the terms of this covenant, may what's happened to this animal happen to me by God. That's severe. And we actually have something of a devalued counterpart to that in our own wedding ceremonies today. That's why the bride and the groom walk up the center aisle. It's meant to convey that same sort of a thing. This is a blood oath that's being taken in a covenant. And that's what God sees marriage to be. In fact, he points this out in Malachi 2.14 when he's bringing judgment onto the peoples because they've not taken their marriage covenant seriously. God takes broken promises very seriously, especially if you make them to him and before him. So that's a covenant. But we can be confused as to what a marriage covenant is. Think about this for a second. A marriage covenant is a promise made between and only between two people, true or false? The answer is false. There's a third party involved in marriage. As R.C. Sproul in his wonderful book, The Intimate Marriage, points out, one, covenants were never made privately. This isn't something where we can just make a promise to our significant other by ourselves at one point and say, I promise to love you and that's all that we need for have a biblical marriage. That's not the case. Covenants were always made publicly. This way you had accountability to keep your promises. But there is a third person involved in the marriage covenant specifically, and that's the Lord himself. Remember what we read earlier in Matthew 19? And it's said there in our marriage liturgy even today, what who has joined together? God. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So this is a covenant that's not just been made between a husband and wife, but this is a husband and a wife before and to God himself. That's what a marriage covenant is, and that's why we have to be so careful with it. Now, there's something interesting in my reading through this. We tend to think that when we talk about what God has joined together, let not man separate, that we think, oh, yes, divorce. We don't want lawyers to split apart what God has joined together. One commentator took that thought a little bit further, and I like what he's come to, and I think he's accurate on this. This is out of Matthew. This is what the commentator says. The principle of Genesis from which Jesus draws this application goes beyond opposing divorce. 
It opposes marital disharmony altogether. Now, what is this scholar saying? Separation in a marriage doesn't begin at the lawyer's office. Breaking apart a marriage begins in fighting over silly things at home. It begins by breaking a partner's trust in your spouse. The command that we see there in Matthew 19 doesn't just apply to the lawyers and the judges. It applies to husbands and wives. We're not to break apart this relationship that we have made. However that is done, there's a lot of ways we can do that. We can either be unkind, we can spend money in ways we're not supposed to, look at things online we're not supposed to, all sorts of ways that we can cause marital disharmony. And that's breaking of the Matthew 19. That's breaking the covenant that we've made before God, that we would love and care for our spouse. That's what this is talking about. That's why when we begin, we say fundamentally that marriage is a promise that's made, not between just husbands making promises to wives and wives making promises to husbands, but husbands and wives making a promise together to God that they will honor this commitment that they've made. And that goes far beyond not just visiting a lawyer's office one day, but goes into every interaction that a couple has together. Now, that's a promise. Let's get into where marriage is a privilege. What are the privileges that we're talking about here today? Well, as Sproul points out, the first privilege that we see for marriage is companionship. When God made the world, he looked down at Adam and says, it is not good for him to be alone, but it's to be, have a wife with him. Brought all these animals, none of those suited. Could only be a woman that could support Adam. As other commentators point out, and have said more artfully than I could, is when God took a bone from Adam, he didn't take the bottom of his foot to subjugate his wife. He took it from his rib. It's beyond her side. There's an intimacy here from his chest cavity, where his heart is, is where he has made this woman. Not to domineer, but to love and support. That's what we see here. That this is a companionship. Now, this is not to say that Singleness is a curse or less than God's best. Indeed, Paul himself chose singleness because it made for a greater effectiveness in the ministry that God has called him to do. I actually had a professor um, who was a brilliant man who had a serious relationship when he was in college, but he knew that the ministry that God was calling him to do, which was going to be moving all over the world and giving lectures and training up future students, that it would not be conducive to marriage. And he decided not to get married. He really wanted to. But he decided that this was going to be the, that he was going to leave this gift at the altar and he was going to go his own way. And he was going to follow after what God had called him to do and in a sense had a really fruitful ministry. So this is not to say that singleness is less than God's best. But it is to say there is a tremendous privilege in that when if we, if you are desirous of being married, that's a good thing. Go for it. It's not a weakness. But this is a beautiful privilege that God gives to us in companionship. A second privilege in marriage, which we'll not spend a lot of time on today, is sexual intimacy. 
I'm going to save that for the end of our series. This was something I was debating on whether or not to include, but uh, as in recent events, I think this is something that is worth our consideration. But to, but to just speak of it here, God has given us this gift of sexuality. It's something that we in our country and our time are trying to turn into something that's not. That sexuality is just meant for me. But what God's picture of sexuality is, it's for we. It's for husband and wife only. The only expressions that is given to our sexuality is in marriage. And that's why this is a privilege that he's given to us. This is something that is supposed to be a beautiful picture of the intimacy that we have with God. Not a sexual intimacy, but an intimacy of deep knowledge. That's what this is pointing to. And again, we'll flesh that out as we get along, but just to show it from from there, this is a privilege that's given only to those that have made a covenant with God before witnesses. Engagement is not enough. That's not a promise made before God and before witnesses. Cohabitation is not enough. That is not a covenant between God and witnesses. This is something that we make before God. That is what gives us this privilege. Now, the third privilege of marriage that we have is children. Obviously, since sexuality is supposed to reserve for marriage, this is children that are a blessing of marriage itself. Now, I want to be sensitive here. Not everyone who gets married is able to have children. I have friends of mine that I have went to seminary with that they were not able to have children despite being married. They just couldn't have that. They did adopt, and they have, there are now five children between the two of them that have homes that otherwise wouldn't. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel in itself of bringing people and adopting them into the family. But what is experienced by those couples and a lot of couples that can't have children of their own, there's a deep pain there. And for many, there is a subtle question as to whether or not, well, maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe God is punishing me for either something I did or something that I just can't remember. God's angry with me in some way. That's not necessarily true. Sarah was given the promise, Abraham's wife, was given the promise that she would have children. And then it didn't happen for 25 more years. Was it because God was angry at her? No. God had promised that he would have a child. This didn't come for 25 years. Where we see in 1 Samuel, uh, Samuel's mother, Hannah, was barren for many years. And by all that we can tell, she was intensely devoted to God. And in fact, her husband's other wife, who was able to have children very easily, was a huge jerk about it. So just because we can't think, well, God must be angry with me because I don't have children, we can't think that way any more than we would just say, oh, well, God must love that person because they have children and I don't. That's not true. Is there opportunities for foster care and adoption? Yes, we need that. There are 75 kids in our county right now that don't have homes to go to. Nationally, there's about 430,000 kids in the foster care system. These kids need a home. And maybe if you're not able to have a child of of your own, maybe it's because God is calling you to minister to one of these children. So the reason why I have included children under the privilege section of marriage 
is because that's not how children are viewed anymore. Today, now people want to practice the double income, no kids lifestyle. And I'll, I'll be honest with you. Yes, you'll have thousands of more dollars. And yes, you'll have a lot more flexibility in terms of traveling. But I have never seen more confidence in ignorance that they will always feel that way. People who have never had children are so certain that they are not worth it because they saw parents struggling with a toddler at a restaurant one time. God views children as a gift. And for us to treat them or see them otherwise is disagreeing with God. And that never goes well. Children are a blessing. And in fact, what we see is when people stop having children is mostly because societies have lost hope. And indeed, by doing so, they've cut off their own source of hope for the future. This will be a fascinating thing, and a terrifying thing, to watch play out in other countries over the next 10 to 30 years. We've seen other countries, like, for example, China, that have implemented terrible policies that limit people to one children, seeing them as a curse rather than as a blessing. They have now entered an irreversible population decline. And within the next, I think, 30 years, the calculation is that China's population will be half what it is today. By the way, basically every country in the world except four is on a similar trajectory. Children are a blessing. And, we, and when we say they're not, there are consequences for that. We'll see that. So this is a privilege that we have for marriage. Now, is that all that marriage is? Because we'll have to be honest, there are times when marriage doesn't feel like a promise that we want to keep or a privilege. What happens when the children grow up and move out of the house and move far away? What happens when marital intimacy isn't what it used to be or for health reasons isn't possible anymore? What happens when all of these things that I've pointed to that are privileges and promises don't seem true anymore? Is the marriage just gone? Is we just need to trudge this thing out? Or is there something more? I think there is something more. Now I'll say here, because I think, because unfortunately it needs to be said, there can be times when marriage gets to the point where one spouse is committing injustice against the other. Physical abuse or mental abuse or something like that. If that's what's happening to you, please come and see me. This is something that I didn't think I would have to say in my ministry, but I've had to. And you would not be the first one I've talked to. God does not call us to do that. In fact, what we'll see in the next time when we meet together, the ways that we love our spouse is to not let them sin against us in these serious ways. That's not what the Lord is calling us to endure. But if that's not what's happening to you, if he's just bad with the laundry, or if she just doesn't pay attention to you like she used to, then perhaps here we can see a reason to keep this marriage going. And in fact, even find hope for it to thrive. That's where we get to our third point, is that marriage is a presentation. A presentation of what? It's a presentation of the gospel. And we'll see this fleshed out, the practical implications of how this works over the next two sermons. 
But for now, we look in Ephesians 5, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to their church, as, as the church submits to Christ, excuse me. Then Paul goes on to talk about the purpose of marriage in Ephesians 5, 31. Notice the word that's used there is to hold fast to his wife in Ephesians 5. That's actually a really beautiful word that's used here. The term that is often used in the Hebrew, that's what we see in Genesis 2, refers to the joining together as like parts of a body. How connected is your arm to your shoulder? Why, it's almost hard to tell where one begins and one ends, isn't it? If we were to separate the two of them, this would be a fundamental breakage of both. When we're joined together, it's like this is the thing where it only works when we're together. In the Greek word, this refers to the gluing of two pieces of wood together, as opposed to nailing those two pieces of wood together. What I think that's driving at is your spouse has more than just two or three nails and points of connection, but that every single part of you is connected to every other part of you, joined together. Holding fast is what he is trying to communicate to us. Now, what's the beautiful thing is that that image, being held fast together, that same image applies between you and Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't have just two or three points in common with you. But Jesus has joined himself together to his church, holding fast Every part connected. It's an unbreakable bond that Jesus points to. And that's why we can, that's why we'll say that the, the players in this marriage and the husband and the wife each have a particular role as showing what this gospel means and a dedication that a husband has to his wife and the reverence and respect that a wife has for her husband. Can you imagine what people might think of the church if all of our marriages lined up to this biblical ideal. There's one story, a guy who wrote a book on marriage, his name is Christopher Ashe. He tells the story about two competing offices in the British government. One was the treasury and the other was the foreign office, those that deal with other countries. And they were trying to figure out how to divvy up the fleet of Rolls Royces that the British had built. The treasury, being the treasury, didn't want to spend a lot of money and wanted to reserve the Royals Royces only for the British elite to drive around. The foreign office had a different idea. They said, we want to give the Rolls Royces to those that are in these foreign embassies. And the reason why is because we want these other countries, when they see the British subjects riding around in these fine automobiles, that that's their impression of British society that they get. To the point where if they look at them and they say, if British society can build a car like that, there must be something really incredible to their overall society. And they must be worth doing business with. That's the better approach to that. And we in our marriages should think in the same way. If we're going to say we are a people that are transformed by Jesus, not perfect by any means, 
but those where Christ makes a difference in our lives, such that the most intimate relationship that I have is forever transformed in ways that aren't explainable any other way. If that was the case, people could look at marriages and say, wow, if that's what Jesus can do, that's something worth investigating. That's something worth doing. So again, what is our takeaway here? It says that marriage is an extremely precious design of God. That is a promise, a privilege, and a presentation by, with, and of the grace of God. This is something so precious that this is something that's not worth splitting over, whether that splitting happens inside the house but is never formalized, or whether that happens in the court system. A strong marriage is a great gift to the world, but this is not something that can be faked. We were to say, it's like, okay, well, if this is supposed to be, I guess I can imagine this would be my reaction if I hear, oh, well, you know, if my marriage is supposed to be a picture to the world, and that means I have got to hide as many of my relationship problems as possible. Got to keep all of this in the background so no one knows what's going on back here, and that will be the better thing. Yes, we will, we, my wife and I will personally suffer by doing that, but, you know, it's for the church, it's for Jesus, so we'll just put the false mask forward. That is not true. And what that says is you don't believe the gospel. Because what we should say is, we know we believe the gospel. We believe that we are sinners and that we need that. So not only are we able to say, yes, we're sinners, and that shouldn't surprise you, that there is sin in our marriages as well, but the difference is, is that we have a hope of those things being forgiven and transformed. That we can go to Jesus with our marriage problems and look for fix, not immediate Not easy, but secure. When we come to Jesus and say, I bring a lot of selfishness into this relationship, and that's me as well. I bring a lot of selfishness into my marriage. That's not going to be fixed by a program. That can be fixed by the gospel, though. As I admit, yeah, no, I'm selfish. I'm supposed to be the leader in my household, and I can be passive a lot of times. But I serve a God who loves me, who is directing me, who is connected to me, these deepest levels and won't let me go, and is committed to not only begin my faith, but bring it to completion as well, to the point where I will become less and less and less selfish and make the marriage stronger and stronger and stronger. That's the hope that we have as Christians. So we don't hide these things. You don't have to hide. You can say, hey, we want to work on this. We want some help. And if the couple is willing, we'll help. And say, my office stands open. If you want to meet with me as a couple, I'm happy to walk you through what the Bible says. You're not going to get any wisdom from me. I've been married for all the five years. What do I know? For those of you that have been married for all of 30 years, What do you know in comparison to what the Bible says? This is our authority, not what worked for me, not what worked for you, not what worked for your dad. What does God say about your relationship? 
I can lead you through that. We can show you what God says and help to put those things together. If you say, it's like, well, my spouse would never come. Like, All right, you come. We'll work on it, you and me. There's two people to this marriage. There's two different commands that we can give. And the Lord gives hope to both parties of being obedient to him. All of this is to say, the way that marriage points to the gospel gives us hope. Jesus has died for your sins. He's promised to put back whatever you have done, to forgive it, to blot it out like a cloud. So we saw today in our assurance of pardon. God can put away any sin, marital or otherwise. If you say it's like, hey, I got an unbiblical divorce, the Lord can forgive you. He can set you on the right path. Say it's just like, well, I've dabbled in the privilege of sex before marriage. God can forgive you of that too and set you on the right path. Anything that has occurred in your life, you can be forgiven of. And God can set you on this path towards joy. If you have any questions about that, please come and see me afterward. Nothing would thrill me more than to introduce you to Jesus. Or if you say, it's like, yeah, I've been following Jesus for years and my marriage is still in the dumps. All right, let's work through it together. We're a body. If my hand hurts, my other hand wants to come and help. That's what we're here for today. So I pray that you would take advantage of that. And most of all, that you would keep your eyes on Jesus through this, all of this. That's what this whole series is going to be about, how Jesus has interacted with us and how we show that to the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for this institution that you've given to us. It's a promise. It's a privilege. It's a presentation of your gospel. So I pray that we would believe it. We would not look to anything else for our salvation, anything else for our hope, not marriage, not money, not health, nothing, but that we would look to you, the only one who is worthy of praise. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.